good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning everybody out there. And I think it is going to be a good morning. It's when it warms up. <laughs> yes, when it warms up. Nice heavy frost over the paddocks up my way. Uh, fortunately, the freeway wasn't frozen this morning. Oh, that's good. Um, but, um, yes, it was very frosty and there was steam coming off the streams and it was, yes, very winter looking. But uh, lovely lovely and fine and, of course, sun's coming up rather early now. So I drove down in the light. Which yes, is, doesn't just, make a difference. Oh, it's sort of. I, I kept thinking I was running late. <laughs> just, just even since last week, it's lighter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the days are lengthening. So, you know, and, and of course, spring is sprunging all over the place. I oh. mean, the, the, the wattle's out, the prunuses are out, the magnolias are out, the bulbs are up. I mean, really, it's just such a stunning time of the year. So uh, the problem now is that there's so much stuff happening that you've got to run around like a mad thing to make sure you don't miss any of it. You know, so rushing around the garden each morning to make sure that I see everything that's sort of popping out of the ground. It's Yep. Very exciting time of the year. It is. But the only problem being that um, with all that wind and rain we've had, that, that can knock all your blossoms oh. off in a hurry. Yes, it can. Um, but uh, things are, some things are running slightly late. Uh, my tulips are only just getting underway. Okay. Uh, so they've missed most of that really awful stuff. And actually that does raise a, a, an issue quickly. Um, Tesla's bulb fair or Spring Tulip Festival is is starting, started, uh, I think starting this weekend or very soon anyway. They've got very little out yet. Yes, I heard. So, yeah, so Rachel, <laughs> I was talking to Rachel on the phone the other day and this was about a week or so ago and she said, I think we've got six. <laughs> <laughs> so things are running a little bit late this year but uh, I'm sure there'll be lots to see and she did tell me that if anybody comes up early and there's not enough to see, they'll get a return ticket. Well, the other thing later. I heard is that they're actually extending the festival yeah. through for an extra week. Which is probably a wise move. Which makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. So, yes, you can't always rely on nature to do exactly what you expect it no, to you do. No, So, um, yes, but, you know, the garden's looking fantastic and I'm having a lot of fun in the garden at Great. the moment. There's just so much bouncing out of the ground. It's really good. Yep, Excellent. Good morning, Penny Woodward. Morning, Pam, and good morning, listeners. It's great to be here, and I'm hoping that I actually listening to the forecast on the way up, we've actually got some really nice weather coming over mm. the next little bit. So temperatures up around 19 and 22 and stuff. So, um, yes, my nectar and tree and my plum. Um, I just just in the last two days, there've been some bees around because that's the mm. other thing. When you get the cold weather, it's not just the blossom gets blown off the tree, but the bees aren't out yeah. there. Yes, and true. Usually at this time of the year, my garden is buzzing with bees, but it's been so cold and wet and windy that um, they haven't been around. So although my nectarine's been in full blossom and looking absolutely fabulous. That might be it. <laughs> I'm not sure how much fruit it's going to have. So I saw there were there were half a dozen bees working it yesterday, so oh, fingers good. crossed there'll be there'll be some. They'll spread the word. Yes, yeah. indeed. And if we, if as, as I said, we have a few warmer days, they'll be out in yeah. force. You know, within a day or so. So, with yep. any luck, the blossom will hang on long enough to um, to get pollinated. Yes. Oh well, the yes. joys of gardening. Oh yeah, indeed. But look, I, I there is a real issue for me at the moment that my ground is so wet that I can't actually do anything mm. in the garden because mm. having clay soils. Um, although my main garden beds, my veggie beds, are raised, they're really wet as well. And yeah. because I work really hard to get lots of organic matter in the soil, that works mm. really well in summer. But with this recent weather that we've had, 
I've actually my garlic is really unhappy is because it? the soil. Oh, I won't is tell the, you how good mine. The thing. soil is so wet. <laughs> um, you know, it it'll be fine once we get this fine mm. weather yep. over the next two or three weeks. But it's been it's been really grumpy this year, so Uh-oh. it hasn't grown at all for you know week. I don't want to hear this. <laughs> I'm making sort of no, uh, sort of uh, hand motions about how okay. tall my garlic Mine is. Mine is probably about that big too, but it just hasn't changed in size oh, for yeah. about two months because oh, it's been so cold and wet. So yep. as soon as the weather warms up, then it gets a bit of heat on it. It'll take off. I'm, I'm in exactly really the well. same boat because yeah. I'm in heavy clay soils. Yeah. And, and again, I haven't been gardening because I don't want to compact the yeah. soil, particularly in my veggie garden. Yeah, even the paths, you know, yeah. anything that hasn't got decent sort of mulch and stuff on it yeah. is, is um, yeah. you know, you can't walk on it. Well, that's actually what I've been doing is I've been cleaning all my, my mulch paths off and putting them onto yep. my ornamental mm-hmm. beds because they've been rotting down for about 18 months, two years, and putting you, fresh mulch. You said you talked about this on, on radio a month ago. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Um, I've just been writing an article about mulch and I put this bit of information <laughs> into you? this article oh, well, that I'm writing. there you go. So <laughs> yeah. It's one of the things I love about gardening is that you learn new things yeah. all the time. Or little techniques yeah. that somebody's been yeah. doing for ages and hasn't yeah. thought much about. It's just the way we do things. Exactly. And then suddenly other people and I are, actually, oh. I've actually been doing it with my yeah. parts because yeah. I've been doing some mulching as well and because I've been so wet, um, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yes. yes, well, my tame, tame tree surgeon delivered a huge truckload of mulch to our place the other day. Oh, that's so, nice. So, yeah, so we've, we've got lots of lovely fresh mulch to put all over the paths. And when you walk on them, they're all spongy. And, and yes, yes. It's lovely. I really love mulch mm, paths. It is a nice yeah. feeling yeah. to it, yeah, isn't so it? It's really good. So we've been putting it down in... In lavish thickness. Fantastic. <laughs> it's nice to be able to be profligate with mulch, I reckon. Yep. Mm. We also have to say a very good morning to Richard Austin, and Richard's from the Australasian Native Orchid Society. Morning, Richard. Good morning, Pam and everybody. I must admit, on the way in this morning, it was lovely to see all the balloons drifting over the city. Mm. Now, I bet it was cold up there. It would have been, <laughs> if it was cold down here, I think it would have been rather chilly up. You wouldn't need ice for the champagne, that's no. for sure. No. So. You certainly need some alcohol to get your blood moving you would. again when you, you get would. down. But uh, they'll be having a lovely, lovely view of this gorgeous morning. So hopefully it's a shade of things to come, and especially for our show coming up next weekend as well. Absolutely, yes. And I can't introduce you as president anymore. You've stepped down. I have, I have. Yeah, I escaped after I think it finished up, it was meant to be three years, and finished up being four and a half or something like that. Oh, well but, done. But George is in, in control now, and he ha- actually is a past president from okay. quite a few years ago. I see, there's chance for you to come back yet. So, <laughs> I, I, I yeah, well, <laughs> yes. I don't want. I want. To, I won't go down that path yet. But uh, no. So we're in reliable oh, hands. That's Good a great good. thing to know. Yes, yes. Excellent. So it's all systems go for the show next weekend. That's right. Yeah. Twenty what was it twenty third and twenty fourth of September. Um, so for those who don't know, that's at the Mount Waverley Community Centre. Um, which is in Miller Crescent, but it's right opposite Mount Waverley Station, Railway Station, so that makes it easy to locate. And if you want to come by public transport, you sort of walk off the platform, across the street, and straight through the front mm. doors of our show. Couldn't be more convenient. It's it's absolutely perfect. And we're open from 9am to 4pm both Saturday and Sunday. And uh, we've got uh, sales, of course, of, of orchids, um, some brilliant displays. So these are all native 
Australian or from the Australasian region. So we take in areas like New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, New Caledonia. Um, so, you know, all those areas associated in the islands close to Australia, although Kiwis mightn't like me saying that. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do see themselves as quite independent. <laughs> exactly, across the ditch there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so, so that, that adds, adds to the dimensions and, uh, of the orchids. So we've got a lot of terrestrials and, of course, the epiphytes, mm. which are probably the, the really popular ones that people like to grow because they create less problems than the terrestrials. Mm. They're a lot easier. And you can put them up in the air. So you're you using can. space you You've wouldn't otherwise space. use. Yeah, just, just, just hanging, hanging plants from, from under pergolas, you know. I've, I've got a collection along one wall, which is perfect. It's just a brick wall, but it's got a nice broad ear over it, and I've just got chains suspended that mm. I can just hook the plants mm. into and, and hang them that way. So you don't have to have a dedicated shade house or anything like that. In fact, you like don't that. almost have to have a garden. Mm, that's right. <laughs> so, so people that are in apartments well, or anything like that, they, yeah. exactly, there's no excuse why they, they can't. So we will have plenty for sale. Yep, there. right. And uh, we've, got, we've also got uh, an art and photography display and we'll have talks on both days. These, these are all free. So people want to come in, um, they can uh, learn how to cultivate orchids. We've got talks on conservation and uh, all those different aspects. So that'll be available for everybody. So, yeah, we'd love to see you there on um, Saturday and Sunday. Absolutely. Now, cost for entry? Yes, $5 for adults, concessions $3 and under 16s free. Oh, look, you know... Cheap at any price. <laughs> oh, exactly. And you can come in, have a cuppa, Devonshire tea. We will have hot food available there from our Orchid Cafe. That's the appropriate <laughs> name, isn't it? That is. <laughs> as long as you're not not cooking tubers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, we'll get back to you and talk a bit more about it because I've got loads I want to talk to you about. Uh, but I will get to community announcements first up. Um, of course, uh, being springtime, it means that everybody's gearing up. There's lots happening out there. Uh, now, first up today, um, and it's day two of the show, the Southern Suburbs Orchid Society annual spring show. Now, this is being held at the NG Wishart Senior Citizen Centre. Um, it's their hall, actually, Senior Citizens Hall. It's 964 Nepean Highway in Moorabbin. Opening time today is 10 o'clock, running through until 4 o'clock. Again, there will be refreshments available. There will be a large range of flowering Australian and other exotic orchids as well. And uh, there will be uh, orchid-related uh, queries and questions can be answered by the orchid-growing experts there during the event. Uh, there will also be a raffle with flowering orchids and accessories as prizes that will be running throughout the day. Now, cost is $3, and um, if you'd like more information, you can phone Frank, 0400 That's 0400 789 Now, uh, also uh, open today, I mentioned this last week, there's um, a wonderful native uh, garden opening up for Opens Gardens Victoria. Now, this is uh, Iliari. Now, it's down at Balnarring Beach. Uh, the actual address is 7 Library Road in Balnarring Beach. Do you happen to know this one, 
Penny? I know the people. I have, I have to admit I've never actually been to the garden. But, um, so the, you haven't been people, invited. No, <laughs> <laughs> the people who own the garden um, were taught both my kids at school. So oh, both, there you go. ex-teachers. Okay. Well, apparently the garden has been inspired by uh, the naturalistic style of landscape architects such as Gordon Ford, Paul Thompson and Sam Cox. So, uh, Look, I gather it's brilliant. And, yes, and it sounds really wonderful. And they're committed native plant people and they've been working on it for years. And, and yeah, so it's well worth saying that I haven't actually made it. I mean, I tend to end up in places like this on weekends <laughs> instead, <laughs> of, instead of It's funny home. about that, Yes. yes. <laughs> Okay, well, as I say, that, that is open uh, today, 10 o'clock through till 4.30. Um, entry is $8. Children under 18 are free. Students, $5. There will be plant sales by Merrick's Nursery and there will be refreshments and light lunches available as well. Now, um, talking of Open Gardens Victoria, uh, the next opening will be next weekend. And this is um, a garden called Waruka Garden. And uh, this uh, is where a plant collection of a passionate plantsman blends into the bushland setting up in the Dandenongs. So uh, the property is just under one acre. It was purchased in 1988 and then... uh, It's been uh, skillfully handled with a series of dry stone walls using rocks sourced from the blocks and timber decks on different levels connected by steps. So um, lots and lots of plant varieties there. Um, Paul Thompson actually developed a a design with a winding path uh, to make the front garden more accessible as well. So plenty to see. Now, the address is 17 Jubilee Road in Montrose. As I mentioned, it's open next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, 10 till 4.30. Again, entry is $8, children under 18 free, and students $5. There'll be refreshments available, sales of native plants and a range of unusual and uncommon bulbs. And the owner will give brief explanatory walks at 11am and 2pm on both days. Now, as usual, uh, we've been very lucky and been given one uh, free double pass to give away to this garden for next weekend, Waruka, which, as I said, is up in Montrose. Uh, If someone would like that free double pass, it will be posted out to you. You can give Jan a call now on 94190155. That's 94190155. Now, uh, also coming up this Monday, the 18th of September, there'll be uh, a talk given by Dr Peter May um, up at Kyneton Horticultural Society. Now, of course, Dr Peter May was former head of Burnley campus. He now lives in Kyneton and his passion is trees, trees and more trees. So his topic is uh, the likely effects of climate change on our trees. Now, the talk is being held at the Watts Pavilion in the showgrounds there, uh, Mollison Street, Kyneton, 7.30pm, followed by supper. Entry is gold coin donation. Now, coming up next Saturday, 23rd of September, there is going to be uh, a Clivier Expo. This will be held at St Scholastica's Community Centre, which is 384 Burwood Highwood, Bennett's Wood, uh, it'll be open from 10am until 4pm. Parking is off Starling Street there. 
There'll be propagation and cultivation demonstrations and exciting new varieties displayed and for sale. Refreshments available and entry for that one is $2. Uh, just a couple more I should mention. Uh, firstly, Stephen, do you know anything about Mount Macedon Bonsai <coughs> Garden? Uh, only the guy who owns it, so I don't know what um, Malcolm's got going on, okay, uh, coming okay. up, but uh, yes, I haven't heard anything. Okay. Um, now, he is at 4 Cheniston Road in Mount Macedon. Only and... metres from my nursery, I might add. Oh, there you go. So, obviously, anyone going up could yeah. go to both. Yes, exactly. Uh, but what he is offering um, uh, throughout September is a bonsai repotting service, mm-hmm. uh, but he's also offering uh, free um, advice and troubleshooting on weekends. So if anyone wants to call in if they're having problems with their bonsais, um, he's more than happy to offer free advice and troubleshooting on weekends. Yeah. And as I say, um, there's the uh, the repotting service throughout September. Now, uh as I mentioned, he's at 4 Cheniston Road in Mount Macedon. His phone number there is 54261560. Now, good friend uh, Simon Rickard is holding some botanical workshops, uh, three in all, uh, one each month. Now, the first one is coming up um, 21st of September, so not far away. Uh, now, uh that one is going to be Welcome Back Spring and it's going to be uh, talking about uh, about sowing vegetables from seed and an introduction to heirloom vegetables Now and also a wander through Simon's Woodland Garden. Now, these workshops, I should say, are all taking place um, at Trentham's Casa Allegra. Now... Uh, uh, that will be the garden, I think, that you'll be taking a wander through first. Uh, now, So the first one is September 21st. second one is October 26th, um, which is uh, all about uh, what the Chinese know as the flower of heaven, which is tree peonies. And so uh, Simon will be uh, uh, talking all about tree peonies and also having a um, private viewing of Simon's tree peony collection there in the morning session. These workshops all include their full days. They all include lunch as well. And then Simon will give um, a presentation on the history of the tree peony. And the final one will be on November the 30th. That's talking about birds, bees and flowers, the sex life of plants. And uh, in the morning... Simon uh, will be doing a presentation on the astonishing sex life of plants and after lunch a ramble around the gardens at Casa Allegra in their spring glory. So the workshops, the cost, 160 per head for each workshop or if you want to do the package of all three workshops, $430 per head. All workshops include morning tea, lunch and a glass of wine and afternoon tea. Uh but you will need your own transport to get up to Trentham, of course. Now, if you'd like to uh, book in for those, uh, tickets are online at ticketbow.com.au forward slash Rickard Garden Series. So that's ticketbow.com.au forward slash Rickard Garden Series for that one. 
All right. Well, it's high time we opened our uh, talkback lines. If you'd like to give us a call this morning and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. That number, 94190155. Stephen, last time you were in, you were talking about a website. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, a website that I've been using quite a bit lately Um to check on the edibility of cool climate plants, they're actually going to expand out into tropicals as well in due course, is Plants for a Future, it's called. Um, came up accidentally when I was Googling something at one stage, and I've now got it on my computer where I can just click into it without having to go searching for it every time. And it's really useful because you, you open the site, you put into the search thing the plant you're looking for, and it will tell you whether it has edibility or medical use or not uh it will give it a rating as to its edibility or usage it will explain to you what it can be eaten or used for um and uh, i found out some really interesting stuff about plants i didn't know uh as i've been so what i do now is i check the the um the plant list for correct naming and then i go over to the uh plants for a future to check out and see whether there's anything edible about it so uh, you're systematically munching your way through yeah, the garden i am yes <laughs> yes so it's uh i have to say some of it is somewhat um uh, a Dubious? bit esoteric i mean i did bring a plant along today a a, a packy fragma which comes from um turkey and it's obviously in the brassica family, and the flowers are edible. I've tried them, and they're bland and boring. Uh, <laughs> but if I was starving, hungry, I would, yeah, all right, I can eat it, I know. And but they it, did but say, it can also, they look beautiful oh, yeah, in, a, in a salad or something. So it gives you joy. It yeah. doesn't just have to be about the flavour. Oh, of course not. I, I realise that. But, you know, it's yeah, edibility and and tastiness aren't always in the same brief. No, I agree. You know, yeah, yeah, so you, absolutely. You, some of these things you've got to take with a little bit of a grain yeah. of salt. In fact, a lot of salt for some of them might be a good idea. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so it's Plants for a Future, uh, and uh, they are a really interesting website, and uh, you can just go in and check out the plant that you're looking at. Uh, you will need a proper botanical name because uh, mm. it doesn't work with common names and stuff, so you will need the full botanic name of any plant you're looking up. Um, but uh, it's really useful. Uh, and at some stage I'll come back with a new website as well because the plant list from Q is no longer being managed as a website. It's still there and you can oh. use it. But they're stu- they've got a new one, and I can't remember what it's called. I only found out yesterday because oh, okay. I found what I considered a mistake in the plant list. So I got onto their um, manager, if you could sort of find it. Mm-hmm. way down the bottom somewhere, and sent an email and suggested that there was an error in Eucryphia in that they had the two South American ones as synonyms of each other and they just can't possibly be. And I got an email back suggesting that the list wasn't being managed anymore and it did move me over to a new list which I haven't actually played with yet. So once I had a chance to have a crack at it and see how it all works, uh, I'll let people know about that because to keep up with modern nomenclature... Uh, well, yeah, because it's it's changing so rapidly, uh, so people can't go to that Q website anymore. Well, they can still use it; it's there, but it won't be up to date. It, well, it, and, it, and, and and it'll be ninety nine percent up. To yeah, date. it'll still yeah, be it pretty up to date. I have to say, one of the changes, I did get a chance to go into this new website once last night, just quickly, and I thought I'll just type in Callistamin and see what happens because I know that the botanists are meant to have dumped them all in with Melaleuca now. Yeah. And lo and behold, the Callistamins came up as synonyms of Melaleuca, so they're okay. fairly up to date by the looks okay. of it. Yep. 
Okay. So I'll tell people about that new one once I can remember what it's called. <laughs> yep. uh, and uh, it's a very, very useful resource to be able to just go in and check that the names you're working with things are up to date. Because as we all know, plant names are changing apace at the moment. And uh, I'm surprised every time I go in and I check on something, I think, oh, that's pretty going to be pretty all right. And then you find, oh, my God. It's not that genus anymore. <laughs> and so can, it, can it, I just say and that Wikipedia is actually pretty up, pretty good. Yeah. I find that because quite often now I go there first. Yeah. And if I see there's a change, I then do other checks around yeah. it to make sure it's accurate. And every time it's been accurate. Yeah. Oh yeah. Look, so I've... you know, if you if you don't want to wade through other websites, mm. you can be it you know, Wikipedia is actually pretty reliable. Yeah. Okay. Um mm. so but I, I would always do a secondary check if there yeah. is if there is a change. Well, this one is being run by Q and yeah. Missouri Botanic Gardens and somewhere else. Yeah, I can't look, absolutely. Yeah. I agree yeah. that it's the gold standard. Oh yeah. If oh you, yeah. Yeah. And can I also say that the Plants for the Future database has been um, there for about twenty years? Has it? Yes, and I've been using it in that time, and it is a very accurate, very mm. useful website. It mainly uses information from outside, yeah. but it, it aggregates it all in one place. Yeah, and it has all the references that it uses. So if you need to double check, you can go back to the references yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, I find so it, it's, it's a it's yeah, fascinating. It's, it's really it's very interesting yeah. and it's good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that because I thought it was great. So I'm glad to have, <laughs> glad to have that sort of backup. Yes. Yeah. Uh, dear. Okay. We'll go to our first caller and we have Thelma down in Leangatha. Good morning, Thelma. Oh, good morning, panel. And Penny, my garden is just like yours. I look at it from afar because I don't dare try walk through oh, the yeah, mud. Oh, yeah, so, so wet. <laughs> no, yes. It is so wet. We had another inch of rain here yesterday. Oh, yep. Goodness. So did so, we. Yep. So yep. anyway, what I've rung up for, yesterday we had our regional conference down at Inverloch and Don and Jennifer Rickard turned up because they had a very special thing to do yesterday. They have awarded the John Pascoe Faulkner Gold Award to our Josie Rutherford. Wow. I know, and it was the gold. And to get this medal, it's only a med- a- awarded to a member or an affiliated club or a society member for services to horticulture. But the gold is only awarded to a member for outstanding and distinguished service. I know there's a lot of people who are in your show, listen to your show, that all absolutely adore Josie, not only for her horticulture, but for her date scones and jelly beans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, it's probably the date scones that pushed her over the line for the gold, really. John said in his speech leading up to it, he said, Don, sorry, I thought, he said, oh, you know, I... I saw the name and I thought, oh, I don't know whether she deserves it. And someone said, date scones, she got the gold. I <laughs> <laughs> see, he was thinking in the same line as me. <laughs> oh, so that's it wonderful. Was a, it was a big shock to her, but, you know, like she has put so, so much into horticulture and the royal especially. And, yeah, so it's a very, very special day for that lady. Yes, certainly is. And it's it's named John Pascoe Faulkner for people who didn't know way back in 1849. So it goes back a long, long time. And he did trial gardens at Burnley in 1850. So, yes, it's, it's a very distinguished award and we're all very, very proud of our Josie Rutherford. 
That's Good. wonderful, Fantastic. and thanks for telling us about it. That's brilliant. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. It's lovely when people who work behind the scenes get the recognition. Of course it is. That, Certainly you know, is. Because Actually, so often it's the people up front and the leaders and the presidents of societies who, who get the recognition, yeah. but it's great when people... It actually does are, raise, an uh, not an issue per se, but a lot of garden clubs that are affiliated with the Royal Horticultural Society might not realise that these medals are available for members. Um all you have to do is apply to the, the Royal. They will give you a list of criteria whereby you can issue a gold, a silver or a bronze Pasco Faulkner for specific service. Um, I don't even think they cost anything. I'm, I'm not sure on that. You'd have to get in touch with the Royal. But if they do, they're not terribly expensive. Mm. Uh, and they normally send somebody like Don out to present it. So it's always made a, a big deal of. Um, and, uh, you know, you, many of the clubs may well have members that have been working mm. away in the background yes. for years and years and years and deserve some sort of recognition for their for their efforts. Um, and so you could do far worse than getting them a, a John Pascoe Faulkner medal. Absolutely. So, yeah, but you do have to be an affiliated club of the Royal or a member of the Royal individually um for for that particular award to be yep. issued um but a lot of the victorian garden clubs are affiliated members anyway so it's it's a service that the royal does that a lot of clubs perhaps don't take use of mm. or make use of mm. mm. Stephen, we should quickly mention the plant fair oh yes yeah because that's coming hurtling it's towards closer. me <laughs> um 7th and 8th of october uh the garden lovers fair at mount macedon um <laughs> 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's at 370 Mount Macedon Road, which is the beautiful garden of Bolobek, uh, which is one of our heritage gardens in the area, uh, originally landscaped by Oswald Syme, the starter of the Age newspaper. Um, uh, admittance to the car park will be from 9.30 a.m. Uh, no dogs are allowed. Uh, entry is $10. Children uh, under 15 are free. Uh, and the $10 entry gets you into the fair where there'll be 30-odd plant stalls and associated product stalls uh, and the garden as well. So for 10 bucks you get a wonderful view of a garden. Uh, there'll also be a coffee cart. There'll be food available. Uh, so you can really make a day of it. Uh, there'll also be a speaker's marquee where there'll be sp- uh, talks going on during the two days. Um, so... Um, yeah, so all in all, a really good event to come to, a great way to talk to people who are specialist growers doing all sorts of interesting plants mm. and getting all the lowdown you need on growing that rare thing that you haven't grown before. And uh, and it's a major fundraiser for the Mount Macedon Hort Society. So uh, we'd love to see everybody up there on the 7th and 8th of October. Absolutely. Penny. You've got something new and exciting out. Indeed. Uh, Look, Organic Garden is really good at getting new and exciting things out. There is actually a new edition of the magazine out as well, but I haven't got mine yet for some reason, which is very frustrating. What's going on? And your article is in it. Oh, it is in it. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard back from uh, anybody about that yet either, so there you go. Fine. Well, you should hear soon because I'll pay you for it. Oh, good. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so the new edition is out, so look for it in newsagents. But this is the the lovely uh, diary and calendar that Organic Gardener does every year. And as Pam said, isn't the cover gorgeous? It and is. It's, it's important when you've got a diary to have mellow a, fruitfulness. Yes, it is. <laughs> and it's, a, it's well, look, it's in some ways it's a bit of a cliche in Organic Gardener terms, but it's a beautiful old ladder with a big basket of apples sitting on it and the apple tree behind. So gorgeous photo. Um and, and they're just beautifully put together and they have lots of space. The diary is a week to an opening starting on a Monday. The world is full of people who have very divergent views. And, and after having put this diary out for years, we got an email at one point saying, 
I can't buy your diary because it doesn't start on a Sunday. <laughs> so it was really important to them that it went from Sunday to Saturday. Yeah. And I didn't even realise that diaries went from Sunday to Saturday. But So she just said, look, I need you to change them, change it so it goes from Sunday now, to Saturday. I want to ask a question. It looks to me like all the days get equal billing. Yeah. Uh, I find diaries that have bigger spaces for Saturday and Sunday really useful because that's when I'm likely to be out and about doing things and need more space yeah, to write about Yeah, you see, them. the thing for me is every day is a working day. So yeah. I... I, um, I Equal billing's fine. Yeah. So, I have to say, though, there's plenty of space on, for each day. Yeah, and in, on several weeks you have a to-do this month thing no, that I... you can use to put your overflow in. But one of the things I love is that on every page, every um, opening, there's a gardening photograph. There's a beautiful flower or there's a recipe. And at the beginning of each month there's a, um, a big picture and, and what to do this month. So it's sort of action for the month. Um, some nice recipes, some you know bits and pieces at the back. It just has a really nice feel to it. So, I, and it's a decent solid diary. It's, it's not a, going to yeah. fall apart. It's a on good you. hardback diary. It's got it's got a, a marker in it, so you can mark where, where you're what up date to, is, is what the date is, and you, and you can put the um, a, there's a, ru- a rubber. What, an elastic. elastic, an elastic band thing that you can close the diary with, so it doesn't, so it doesn't fall open. But yeah. it looks, it looks really nice. And um, a lot of people now, I know, use electronic diaries. And uh, there was an interesting conversation on radio recently where somebody had actually gone back to using a paper diary because they just found electronic too hard. And I'm a bit like I've stuck with with paper diaries, um, and and I mm. love it. I love that feeling of writing on paper and, and um, opening and having a, something having something tactile rather than something digital. So I haven't become digital. So that's the diary. The calendar is a, is a really is, has a different um, foodie or flower type photograph on, on each page and um, as well as a, a bit down the bottom that gives you a bit of um, botanical information. Oh, and I should have said both of them have what to plant now lists for each region. So um, they're not not comprehensive. There's only half a dozen in each, but it gives you some ideas of the sort of things that could be going being planted each month. So and they they retail for fifteen ninety five. And they're out now. They are out now. Only just so you may that you may not find them in in every um, in every news agent. But yes, they are out. Um, you can get them through the ABC. So online and. Um, Organic Gardener has a deal at the moment where if you subscribe, you get a free, I think it's calendar, with every subscription. Okay. So if, you, if you were renewing your subscription, you, you would get that as well. Yep. yep. So, yeah. And uh, they have, uh, Organic Gardener very kindly supplied us one diary and one calendar uh, for our supporter segment today. So uh, if you'd like to... Uh, Grab yourself next year's diary or calendar, and they are really beautiful. Um, then uh, give Jan a call. You will have to pick them up, though. They'll either have to be picked up from uh, 3CR during office hours during the week, or Stephen is quite yep. happy to take them back to his nursery if you'd like that to pick them up That way I can use them there. before you get them. <laughs> <laughs> you can't use the calendar. It's covered in plastic. Oh, <laughs> so, so we have... Uh, uh, as I said, we have one diary and one calendar uh, for $16 for each of those. Um, if you'd like to give Jan a call, we can put that aside for you to collect or, as I said, Stephen can take it up to his nursery. So give Jan a call now on 9 
419-0155. And, of course, they'd make a fantastic uh, Christmas gift if you're trying to think of something for Christmas. Diaries never go astray, neither do calendars. Uh, so uh, um, if you'd like to make the most of that and support um, 3CR and the gardening show at the same time, do give Jan a call now on 94190155. Richard, let's get back to the orchids. Um, can we have a little bit of a chat firstly about some of the talks because you're covering some amazing topics there that's going, that are going to be given during the show next weekend. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, a lot of that is to help not only educate but enlighten people, you know, especially with the cultivation. Let's look at that, for example. People buy some plants and uh, the next best thing is being able to go and see. So we do the epiphytes separately and the terrestrials separately. And they can go in there and just basically have a look at how those plants can be managed, repotting, all the things you need to watch out for. So we'll have one of, I talk on each of those, one each day, that's not a problem. And if people come along on the Saturday for argument's sake and they want to come back and listen to a talk on the Sunday, if they just hang on to their ticket, uh, we'll let you back in the next day. That's not a problem at all. That's so great. you can cover, cover both days. Um, I'm starting off on the Saturday morning with a talk about the pollinators and it probably takes a, a rather interesting look at all the bizarre aspects of orchid particularly terrestrial pollination. I mean, the examples we've got in front of us here, which um, Pam's got a nice little bunch here of um, Kingianum-type um, hybrids, the little epiphytes, they've got that intense perfume, mm. you know, and everybody hits, hits them as soon as they walk into the hall. But it's all a ploy because those orchids, most of them are non-rewarding. So they don't give you anything back. They don't give no. any, but the bees Miserable think, oh, that should, that, should, that should give me something, the native bees, so they'll go to them. And the interesting thing with the majority of Australian Australasian orchids is that only a handful are actually rewarding. The rest mimic different things or con pollinators into thinking they're something else and right. that's how they get pollinated so okay. it's quite a bizarre sort of journey they're in a that wicked area. group these orchids they, they are <laughs> they are and uh, like there's uh, so many um listeners out there would pr probably be familiar with the little green hoods which mm. which are out everywhere at the moment we've got a big pot of them in here at the at present but they've got a, a little labellum in there which most of these have been triggered but if you just touch them it flicks back in and it's actually a floral trap it traps the insect inside that green hood and the insect has to go out a chosen route to collect pollen and deposit pollen. So it forces it to go through this little little tunnel that's in there and that sort of thing. So it just tricks it into thinking there's something in there and when it's trapped, it's got to scramble out and in doing so, it'll pollinate the plant mm. and away it goes. But again, there's no reward for it or anything like that. So that, that's quite interesting. And we even go into, uh, again, on the Saturday, the last talk on Saturday, and I'll put this one last because so many people want to talk to Wendy afterwards. That's Wendy Clark, who's a professional photographer, and she's going to take you through all the do's and don'ts of... Um, macro photography so oh, bring your fantastic. camera along yeah. and she also now does or, or goes into looking at uh, what you can do with your um iphones mm. or, or, or okay. you know okay. because they're bec the, the actual 
cameras that are in some of the phones now, even the Android versions and all the rest of it, are quite stunning. You can oh, do yeah. a, you can do a lot. Yeah, I started with them getting used to using my phone as a camera. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And of course, the the other talk we start off on Sunday with is is um, about conservation, which is a very big part of the work mm-hmm. we do. Absolutely. I mean, a good example of that is, is there was a little orchid called Caledonia pumula, which was discovered in 1916, and uh, Nichols did a colour illustration of it in the early 30s, and we didn't see it again for 75 years. Goodness. It was considered lost. So if you go back to, to the older books, you'll just see a reference to it, but no, no photos because it was gone down near Geelong. And would you believe in 2009, two plants were found? Yes. Close to each other, mm. the only two. They're being protected. They flowered, so they were able to collect pods off them, mm. cross-pollinate, collect pods, which has gone to the RBG nursery, mm. and consequently they've been growing on. And this year they're actually flowering. Oh, fantastic. And next, oh, this coming week the guys down Geelong Way, and thanks to, to, to a lot of the, the crew down at Anos Geelong have put a lot of work into this, are going to go through a particular reserve to look at possible reintroduction areas for the plants. Mm. So that's the sort of thing that we do in the way of (laughs) conservation scenarios. And, uh, you know, you've got to have that person out there who knows what they're looking Mm. at. And and one of the problems with Australian, or not problems, but one of the things about Australian native orchids is that in a lot of cases the pollinators haven't been necessarily identified. Exactly. So even if you collect the seed and grow them and they flower, if you haven't got the pollinators there then well, you don't get flowers because there was one example of one when I went on a tour of the of the botanic gardens um, where they have the have the orchids there. Of an, it was a gnat, mm. as in a G-N-A-T gnat, yep. that yep. was the yep. pollinator, but the gnat hadn't even been identified yeah, because there's right. nobody in Australia who studies gnats. So, you know, how how you can go from finding a rare plant that is flowering to not only identifying the pollinator, but also the fungal, fungus that it needs exactly. to grow. So you have to have those mm. three things so we're, together. Well, we're so fortunate. it's extraordinary work that you guys are doing. We're I able to extract fabulous. the fungi. Well, we found yeah. a compatible fungi, which was good. So, so that yeah. germinated the seed. And as you said, the pollinators, what's really interesting there is now we do go into areas. If we're going to do a reintroduction, we're doing mm. a lot of things, Caledonia, Rosella, um, Robinson EI, which is the Frankston spider or with things like that. We know what the pollinators are for those. So yep. if we want to put them into an area, we will go in there and capture wasps, take bait plants and go from there. So we can identify because if the pollinator's not there, mm. yeah, not, worth, not worth yeah. reintroducing yeah. to that area. Yeah. And away we go. If we don't know, initially what we can do is at least hand pollinate for the mm. first couple of years and hopefully follow up with that. So, you know, there's a lot of work being done by a lot of enthusiastic people. You've also reintroduced Caledonia formosa. Yes, yes. Back into Western Australia, parts of Western um, Victoria. Victoria. Right? That, yes. that, that went on earlier earlier this year. Yes. Um, crisscrossing the state they were um, for, for about a week and, uh, and running around doing a lot of reintroduction work in that area. That's always ongoing, pardon me. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, but, but, and again, all those plants are, are growing on at the RBG um, through, through the lab and in the nursery there. Mm. And once they get to a suitable size... And we find, again, a suitable location, out they go. Fortunately, too, what did secure, I believe, a lot of those 
areas that they were reintroduced were actually on private property, mm. which is very helpful, mm. and private property in that the people there, you know, want to conserve these sorts of things. Yep. So, so they know, know they're there and they, they, know, can, they can look after them. them. The, yep. the problem is when you do go on government land, which is, I, you know, a, a great thing, but you do are leaving yourself a little bit open, um, particularly when you have to fence things and um, put in cages. And, yes, because yes. Anybody sees that? That's like you know a oh. red bull to a rag, a, ra- a rag to a red, red, red mm. you know, to a bull. They see yeah. what, what's over here. Yeah, and they go have and to have go and investigate. They yeah. check it out, and all sorts of things can happen. So that's been that's been very successful. And uh, again, same with the Western Plains with the, with the uh, fragrantissima. Mm. Because this time last year we started our crowdfunding campaign, which we knocked over. Um, very well. Yes. And um, we got our, oh, I forget what it was now, it was about $20,000. So then the government had to match us dollar for dollar because we mm-hmm. reached the target. And uh, that's all gone into that campaign as well. And, you know, it's, it's <coughs> pardon me, it can be boring stuff like fencing mm-hmm. and weeding, but this has all got mm-hmm. to be done. And as Penny said, we now make sure we're reintroducing pollinator plants for the pollinators, mm-hmm. what they feed on. You know, wasps feed on things like you know, yeah, because they're not getting anything like from that. the orchid. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You've got to keep you've got to keep them all happy. Yeah. And if there's nothing for them to feed on there, mm. you know, it, it's it's a pointless exercise. So mm. we're not only reintroducing orchids, we're reintroducing native wildflowers mm. to to encourage the pollinators and the whole you know biodynamic of the community. Mm. Fantastic, and 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 a huge pat on the back to members of of. Anos for doing all of this—it's just incredible. Oh, I think I think there's so many. Fortunately, we've got a, we've got a lot of members who are now retired, but as they will tell you, they spend more time working now than they ever did yeah. when they were fully yes, employed, I bet. Yeah. I bet. and uh, you know, travelling thousands of kilometres every year. But things that they're passionate about exactly. and get great pleasure exactly. from, and, and that's yeah. what, that's what we need. You know, we need people to to have this. Even if it's, you know, it can be animals, it can be, you know, particular wildflowers, mm. not just orchids, you know, and that's the thing that, that helps preserve for the future mm. so many of the things that, you know, could easily be lost. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, online we have Tale Kenya from uh, the Diggers Club. Good morning, Tale. Good morning, Pam, Penny, Stephen. Hi, Tale. Good morning. Now, um, very exciting things happening down at Heronswood, which is why I've got you talking to us this morning. Uh, and it's all going to be opening up for the public next weekend. So tell us a little bit about the new gallery. Yes, thank you, Pam. We're so excited to finally have our gallery, Heronswood, open to the public next weekend. You'll probably remember three years ago the fire we had at Heronswood. And Certainly. We, uh, we lost our thatch roof building, so... We suddenly, um, you know, didn't have a restaurant anymore, so we moved into the historic house. And part of our overall plan was to restore the original building on site, the the, uh, drop slab cottage, which we've set about doing over the last year. And in the meantime, the retail that was in there moved up to where the old restaurant was. So our vision was always to extend our education um, program at Heronswood And part of that was to have this wonderful room dedicated to uh, the whole artistic representation of pollination, which is a major sculpture uh, that's built by Kate Road. 
And then in other rooms, we have an heirloom room and an audiovisual room. So we're really excited to sort of bring art, natural history and gardening all together. Mm. Now, firstly, tell us a little bit about the sculpture because it is just breathtaking taking it, to look it at. It is. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I oh. guess it's all for the listeners, if they could imagine uh, this amazing um, neon hyper-coloured palette of extraordinary flowers and plants, uh, three metres high, with the Titan Aaron as the um, centrepiece, I suppose, and, and two metres across. Um, it represents flowers and processes that you would see, um, I guess, in a fantastic sort of, you know, fantasy representation of pollination. So the Titan Aram is the huge centrepiece, orchids, lilies, foxgloves, uh, brugmansias, cacti, bananas, roses, apples, strawberries, cherries, zucchinis, pumpkins, melons, tomatoes, I've probably left some out, and then the insects that would be um, part of that whole natural process. So bees, uh, beetles, um, birds, uh, tomato representing self-pollination, mammals that are involved, so there's bats, and um, it's this sort of life cycle, I guess, of, of a seasonal representation with spring, the sprouting of seeds, going through to full flowering and then the slow decay of huge pumpkins, the seeds falling and the insects and birds around in that. So, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary thing and it is breathtaking both in size and in the colour palette that's used. Absolutely. Now, tell me, um, how long did it actually take from when Clive Blasey first uh, spoke to Kate um, till its, its actual completion? Oh, it must be the longest gestation in history, <laughs> I think. It's, it's nearly four years. And Well, Kate did a lot of research, didn't she? Oh, she did. And um, she was also a very good student. Um, she came to Heronswood and our gardeners took her around seasonally to show her what was happening in the garden. Um, and although she'd always been very interested in the natural cycle and nature, I don't think she'd actually got down into pollination and, and that whole story. So it was very interesting for her to go through this sort of process with um, Bill and our other gardeners down there. But we were set back for a year with the fire. We weren't sure what we were going to do and how we were going to recover. Um, so we had to sort of put her process on hold for a year. Mm. But three years ago, it became very much um, a live project again, and we needed to sort things out ourselves at Heronswood. And, uh, but we, we wanted this desperately to happen because, you know, it's one of those things that we feel that it's, it's really about Clive's ongoing commitment for the last 40 years, or, or more specifically probably the last um, 20 years, to focus on heirloom seeds and the need for us to keep them uh, at the forefront of, of home gardeners' minds to, um, you know, be a part of saving them. And so this is a graphic representation, I suppose, in many ways. And then the heirloom room off to the side, we're hoping will really strike people to to grow these um, these plants and save the seeds and share them and keep them in um Circulation. Mm, now tell listeners a little bit more about what's in the heirloom route. Well, that's, that's a wonderful story in itself. Um, uh, we had a, an, another 
wonderful artist. We 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 chose a number of varieties of um, of vegetables to be in the um, heirloom room. So there's pumpkins, melons, uh, tomatoes, capsicums, chilies, cucumbers. 90 pieces so far and that's a growing collection we selected them from our heirloom seeds grew the fruit and vegetables out at uh, our trial garden in boundary road sent them off to be um, cast into molds uh, resin molds and then beautifully and incredibly painstakingly hand painted each piece with oil paint to be so lifelike that when they've been on a table in the office, people have actually thought, oh, that is a pumpkin or tomato. And the idea here is that anyone who uh, can come any day of the year and look at these magnificent um, pieces, um, who may never have seen one, never had the opportunity to grow one. Unfortunately, we can't offer you a taste of one. (laughs) But uh, in every other way, they are a true uh, facsimile Um, uh, such a realistic representation. So in that room, we um, have our Safe Seed Pledge um, that Diggers made many years ago saying that um, we'll promote heirloom seeds and their diversity and availability and uh, that we believe that they are the garden inheritance and that they should be freely available to everyone and that we oppose genetically engineered seeds. So there's a safe seed pledge there. There's a a display of beautiful produce grown from uh, heirloom seeds. And then there's just a little story about um, why we think that they're so important and that diversity and and, and what we're facing in future years, we should make sure, you know, a hundred years ago, we were told by um, Amy Goldman from Seed Savers Exchange in America that there were 5,000 varieties of tomatoes and now we have so few. So um, we really are very committed to um, wanting people to, to join that cause. And then in, in a little be, room... Be, before you move on, um, I have to say that one of, the, <coughs> one of the displays in the heirloom room that I really loved looking at was the backlit glass display of all the seeds. That was fabulous. That's, um, it looks really fantastic. It was, and, and Priscilla, who's worked so hard on this project with Clive to bring his vision into reality because there's always someone who's got the great ideas and Clive is very much a big ideas person and uh, Priscilla's worked very hard to interpret these and one of the things we wanted to do was no one often looks at seeds these days. Um, you know, gardeners do, but the public probably are quite removed from a lot of seeds unless they're going to cook a pumpkin and they, you know, clean the inside out. So we thought it would be wonderful to have just a, a lit wall of seeds that people could look at and, and put this together from this little thing. There's this fabulous thing in that cupboard there. It's, you know, it's, uh, so that was the, the idea there. But it, it is a wonderful thing. And as I say, we're, we're growing that uh, each year. We want to add to that. Um, there's so many more things we could have on display there. But it's a small room. And that was also one of the reasons that we felt it was a fabulous opportunity for us to present this gallery. Um, it was the original building on site, as you know, built in 1864. And it has this wonderful intimacy about it. So 
it lent itself, I think, to this wonderful display of, of wonderful things. And uh, rather than a great big gallery um, or a great big uh, economic um, museum, as was our real, I guess, uh, inspiration from Adelaide, the um, Museum of Economic Botany there, beautifully and magnificently scientifically done. This is our, our uh, small... I guess, um, effort and commitment to, to doing it for, for gardeners in a more achievable way. Well, the the whole drop slab cottage, um, I mean, it, it instantly reeks of heritage, which is exactly what you're trying to convey. Yes. So it's so it's it's the perfect uh, setting for it is. these. Look, it is. And um, Penny Blasey, of course, has been very committed to, you know, the preservation of historical buildings. And when they first came there as their family home, uh, they immediately put it on the register of National Estate, which tied their hands and anybody else's hands to ever being able to um, alter the buildings beyond any recognition and without some commitment to faithful restoration. So um, that's always been a driver in Penny's mind. So the whole idea of making it the home of the Diggers Club and our commitment to heirloom seeds really fits beautifully hand in glove, I think. Mm, absolutely. Now, finally, tell listeners about the audiovisual room. Well, that's, that's a wonderful little room. It used to be our book room, and it's, it's the smallest of the three rooms. And in there, it's um, a, a, a small room that is dedicated to two audiovisual pieces, and that they're two short videos. So I'm not sure if your listeners or you are familiar with a, a movie that's around at the moment, Seed: The Untold Story. Um, it's really, I guess, a, a journey around the globe about gardeners and, and seed collectors and, and their stories about how they have wonderful seed banks informally and formally uh, and what they're doing to uh, keep heirloom seeds in, in circulation. It, 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 it travels from Mexico to Hawaii to various parts of Europe and, uh, and so it, there's that one there. And we've been lucky to work with the producers to have a, a short video cut down with the salient messages so that you could walk in and have a look and get the idea and, and possibly be so interested you want to go and, and get the movie itself. And then the other one is a very fun little um, tongue-in-cheek representation um, of the, the story of pollination, again to, I guess, a light-hearted version, and that was put together by um, some Melbourne performance artists, the Huxleys. And um, we have actually had it edited down. The original version was uh, somewhat risque, <laughs> to say the least. Not for us, but we were concerned that people um, who may come with children might be slightly aghast at what was on the, on the screen. And it was a little bit long, so that's been edited back down. Uh, it probably still has a, um, maybe a slightly more than PG rating, I'm not sure. But it is a wonderful performance representation of the various stories of pollination. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's really what it's about. I mean, we feel we've got to move into this audiovisual world a little bit because so much of information and the way that people receive um, not just information but also enjoy entertainment is via screens these mm. days. Mm. Absolutely. And um, I'm so pleased that you're, you're opening up officially next weekend because that... that 
um, coincides with um, school holidays and the gallery really would be fascinating to take children to. Look, that's right, Pam, and also um, our team have put together this wonderful little pollinator trail out in the garden. Um, We've had a couple of staff members um, painting all these little stones that will be around the garden for the next little while and when families come with their children... They can, um, they'll have this pollinator map that they get from, from the garden shop. So while the parents are maybe enjoying strolling the gardens or having a cup of tea or coffee, the kids will be busy running around looking for the various little pollinator points in the garden. So, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, we're sort of trying to bring the whole thing together and, um, you know, not just make it a mecca for gardeners and people who are interested in um, heirlooms and perennial plants and, you know, edible gardens, but draw draw the interest out because, um, as you know, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot to compete with these days um, with, with gardening and, and garden destinations. So we're always trying to reinvent ourselves and, and be relevant uh, to, to families and gardeners. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think you and Clive and the whole team down there and, of course, all the artists that have been involved on this project have done an absolutely magnificent job. Can you just... Please remind listeners, um, if, if any of our listeners are contemplating going down there, particularly during the holidays, but, but even beyond that, um, just exactly where Heronswood is and the hours of opening. Yes, thank you. Heronswood is at 105 Latrobe Parade Dramana, an easy drive really from Melbourne or up in the Dandenongs with all the freeways we have these days. Um, we're open 9 to 5 seven days a week. Uh, We have a restaurant on site in our beautiful old historic garden. If you're not a Diggers Club member, it is $10 to come in to the garden and to the gallery and to then go into the historic uh, restaurant for a coffee, tea or dining. We serve morning and afternoon tea and lunch. So for $10, children under 16 are free. So it's a really family-friendly outing for $20 for two parents and a family with children mm. um, if they're not Diggers members. And if you did decide to join Diggers, that actual that entry fee is refunded on the spot through your membership. So it's a lovely thing to possibly contemplate join, joining Diggers, which, um, of course, is all owned by the Diggers Garden Trust now. So... The property has been gifted and the business by the Blasey family to the trust, so we can really um, firmly say we'll be there in perpetuity, waving the flag for heirloom seeds and Australian gardeners for many generations to come. Well, that's fantastic. That really is. And thank you so much, Tali, for talking to us this morning because I really appreciate that and I really hope we have lots and lots of people um, wander down to have a look because it's well worth the trip. Really appreciate your time and thank you so much, Stephen and Penny, too. Uh, that's a pleasure. And I, I, having had a sneak preview of, um, of the gallery, I would recommend that everyone goes and has a look. Because it is, it is stunning. It yes. is. Um, well, we just have to get Stephen down uh, to come yeah. and look. You might have to wait till I get back from Madagascar now, Taylor. Well, you might be able to come and look at the uh, Coco de Mercy. We have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it's very tempting for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Taylor. Thank you again. Bye. Bye. Okay, next online we have uh, Anne out in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, uh, good morning, panel and listeners. It's a lovely sunny morning and we're going to have a beautiful day. 
out of the very, very cold beginning. Now, um, my situation is I've got a couple of what I call rabbit's ears lavender. They're little pots that I bought from Coles and they were half dead when I bought them, but they were $10 each, which I didn't think was overpriced. Some might think that, but um, lavender will last a lifetime if it's properly looked after. Uh, My question is, the uh, dried out... A concoction that the lavender is sitting in. I've got no idea what it is, and I just thought I might be better off if I added a little bit of my garden soil and a little bit of good quality potting mix and a little bit of sea salt and um, transplant it when I'm well enough. I've been ill, and um, hopefully it'll come on in leaps and bounds. My question for you, panel, is. How often do you water the lavender? Okay, um, the rabbit ears lavender is likely to be an Italian or Spanish lavender and the the ears that you're talking about are the bracts on the top of the flowers. So that's just my assumption from your description. Um, lavender, I would if they're still in small pots, I would be definitely potting them into something a little bit bigger with some extra... Um, and the mix that you spoke of is would be fine. Um as far as watering goes, it look, so much depends on where you've got them, whether they're getting natural rainfall um, and uh, what the weather's doing. So in summer, you know, if they're in relatively small pots, you probably need to water them every day. Um, although lavenders do tend to be more tolerant of, um, of dryness than some other plants. The main thing you have to watch for with these lavenders in particular is that you don't let them stay damp because that will kill them. So don't overwater them. Don't leave them sitting in sources of water, particularly in winter. Um, but in summer, make sure that you keep the water up to them. And really the easiest way to tell whether they need water or not is to stick your finger in the pot and if it's dry sort of down to your first knuckle, then give them some water. Oh, okay, then I shall do that. Uh, must... Uh, uh I'm very happy about coming back to 3CR. I've had a time off of listening through illness, but it is uh, a wonderful station, and um, I missed out on uh, your appeal for financial assistance from the public so you can keep going, but uh, I'll catch up uh, when the time is right for me. And all the very best to you. Thanks very much, Anne. Right. Cheers. Bye. Let's talk about uh, about this other little um, orchid. <coughs> little which, being the operative which term. We, Stephen and I have instantly fallen in love with it. It's, it's just gorgeous. It's the most gorgeous. adorable but tiny plant. So, I mean, how it's they so even, tiny I can't see yeah, well, it exactly. without <laughs> my glasses yeah, I had to put my glasses on as well. Uh, whoever discovered that orchid had a very good eye. <laughs> it, it, well, it's actually, it's the leaves, Stephen, yeah. and that's the giveaway with a lot of these things. You quite often see the leaves before you yes, worry, and, and that, that, that's one of the interesting things because they're, they're a ground-hugging leaf, just a single ovate leaf, and, yeah, it's only, only uh, a few, well, what would it be, 20, 30 millimetres, you know, tall flowers. Yeah. Are, flowers. The flowers are minute. They, they'd Absolutely only be, minute. what, two or three millimetres in, in 
diameter now, almost. Now, all those things I was saying about orchids being deceptive, mm. would you believe this is one of the rewarding ones? Oh, so that one actually gives its pollinator something back. It has. If, if you see those <laughs> little... generous. You can see the little glistening streaks on the labellum there, just, just. And uh, that's actually nectar being excluded out. Um, little flies, gnats... And that sort of, you know, feed on if it. If I was that size, it. I'd want to give somebody else a bit of a helping hand to find me, I guess. And, <laughs> and well, that's the interesting thing because all the, all the uh, rewarding plants or orchids tend to be rather small. Yeah. And uh, that, so, as a, or smallish flowers, they might be, you know, multiple flowered things. One thing with these orchids too, um, they're tuber multipliers. So all, a lot of these terrestrials, um, even the caladenias we were talking about earlier, mm. they grow from a little tuber, oh, roughly the size of a pea, mm-hmm. you know, around that size. No basic root system at all with them, even when they're growing. So unlike a bulb that has the roots coming out from the bottom, these don't. They just have a stem that comes up above ground and uh, that follows on. There might be a few little branching stems off that which will produce the daughter tubers on some mm. of these plants, but a lot of them are solitary too. So these little ones tuber multiply and it tunnels just under the surface and sends out little little tubers. So you start off with a little patch like that and after a number of years it'll just continue to grow and grow and grow. Then the wombats come and dig it up and the echidnas <laughs> come and dig it up yeah. and spread it, spread everything around. So as I said, it's it's and these these sorts of things are all out at, at the moment, and um, even around Melbourne in some of the, 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 the reserves, you know, up around Belgrave mm-hmm. Way and, and different areas, you, you'll find all these these little orchids, the green hoods, the little certostylus mm-hmm. and everything else starting to come on for springtime. Well, can I suggest that if people are coming to look at that one at the uh, uh, orchid show that you have... Uh, a microscope or a, or a nice a, hand a lens, a magnifying glass, glass sitting glass next to it, so that people can actually <laughs> a, a, have a, a nice hand lens. And and the the worst thing is, Steve, they do get to half that size. Different different mm. flowers, that is, diff, different species that 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 are. So that's one of the bigger small. ones. That's one of the bigger ones <laughs> of the tiny ones. Yeah. Yes, oh, exactly. Goodness gracious, exactly. Gosh, I, I, I'm. I'm I'm amazed at how some of these are found in the wild. I mean, when we think that is so tiny, um, but it, it must be so easy to walk on them. And yeah, oh, but it, and it's not a simple flower either. I mean, uh, a, to me, it's yes, the intricacy it's of the. It's a yeah. complex flower, but it's just on a minute. Orchids, a of course, form. have taken things to a completely different level because you know there's some underground ones that never come above the surface. Exactly. How they ever discovered those, I have no idea. And, and the interesting thing is, um, they're f- we're talking about pollinators, and and then. Seed distribution, bandicoots. Is yes. that what deals ah. with the so underground orchids? If if they if if you want to sustain a, a, an underground orchid population, which is the Rhizonella group, you need bandicoots in that area to mm. to spread it around because they what would eat pollinate them, them though? Um, I think it's flies yeah. because it's actually just in the leaf litter. It's a cluster flower. Yeah. Um, not like a daisy capitulum or something, but it's, it's a cluster. So even though we call them underground orchids, if you just scrape the mulch back, there will, be the, there will be the flower. Mm. Okay. And that, but when it's ripe, and that being the mystery as to how, how it's spread at seed because mm-hmm. of that situation, mm. it's all well being pollinated, but what are you going to, how's it going to get out? Mm. And apparently it's bandicoots that, that, that um, you know, get the seed and eat it and then 
off they go. They, and would they be it. after the tubers? No, I think I think it's just because it's quite a fleshy looking okay. flower. It's quite a, quite a big flower actually, yeah. you know, okay. as, as, as a as a cluster flower, and and that sort of thing. Although the tubers, so the tubers were, of course, some of the the plants were were, were a staple for the Aboriginal people yeah. too. Yes. Yeah. you know, and and um, also especially up north. The, the juice from a lot of the epiphytes, which they had that really sticky resinous, that was often mixed with um, the, the ochres and all the rest of mm. it to work as a fix, fixative. Mm, we use egg and things like that, artists use now, but the orchid juice was mixed mm. up and used as a fixative mm. for paints by the Aborigines as well. Mm. So, so they knew the value of these plants long before we even recognised them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, we've had a listener on the outside line wanting the gallery name and address. Uh, there's actually no name to the gallery in itself. It's just called the gallery, but it is at Heronswood, which is at 105 Latrobe Parade in Dramana. Um, it's open as part of the historic house and the garden as well as the gallery. Open nine to five, seven days a week. And their phone number down there for more information is 59847900. That's 59847900. Now, we'll go next to uh, Sandra, who's in East Brighton. Good morning, Sandra. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm starting a new garden, and I was after suggestions for a couple of problem areas. One of them is um, the south of the house, two-storey house, so it's in shade for, what, 10 months of the year, basically, and then, of course, it's going to get sun, you know, um, over summer. So what I'm looking for is a small deciduous tree. So I'm wondering about Japanese maples, but I thought they might burn. Look, as long as they're out of the hot winds, Japanese maples will tolerate the sun during the summer. Uh Uh-huh. So you could look at one of the maples. And one of the toughest ones, if you're going to go for a Japanese maple, there's a cut-leafed one which looks so delicate you'd think it would burn to bilio. Uh, it's the only upright cut-leaf maple. Most of the cut-leaf maples are weepers. And it's called Siriu, which is spelled S-I-E-Y-U. S-E-I-S-I-E-Y-U. Yes, Siriu. Uh, no, there's an R in there. S-I-E-R-Y-U. Yep. Um, and it's a beautiful maple with very fine lacy foliage. It has a lovely um, fanny canopy with thyme, uh, and it goes a lovely tomato red in the autumn before its leaves shed. Oh, it sounds nice. Um, about how big would it grow? How long are you anticipating living? Not very long. Oh, well, then don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> uh, most maples aren't excessively fast-growing, so I've got a Siriu in the garden at the nursery that's been there 30 years, and it would be about four and a half metres. Oh, but, but Stephen, they're beautiful from when they're they from are. when they're really little, mm. anyway. So yeah. you get huge pleasure mm. from them. It doesn't no, really it, matter how, how unless big you're they wanting are. them as a shade tree. tree yeah. um, and uh, yes, Penny's right; they're lovely even from a young plant. But they're not even a really old one is not going to be a seriously big tree. So uh, a Japanese maple is a perfectly logical plant to plant quite close to buildings. Yeah. It's not going to do any harm um, to well, foundations it, and things. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say the other thing was I was going to plant. Um, clivias and things like that, shade plants that'll need a bit of mm. protection from the sun. Yeah, well, if you're going to plant out. one of these maples, you need to get it in well before you put your clivias in um, uh, because you'll need to get it going a bit. And I would certainly recommend with a Japanese maple, if I were buying one, 
buy one that's a little bit advanced because you're buying time with them and they don't yeah, seem oh, yeah. to mind being larger plants when they're shifted into place. So if you can get something that's already a couple of metres tall, yep. um, spend a little more money on it, buy a decent-sized one, um, and uh, you know it won't take quite so long to get the shade you're looking for. And, yep. and I guess the other thing is that you're only worried about two months of the year and you could put some temporary shade yeah, in yeah, there I using some shade, shade cloth until the tree gets a little bit bigger because yeah. you've only got to do it for a couple of months. Yeah, that, that's true. Yep. No, that sounds great. Um, the other um, one is that I'm looking for a deciduous shade tree to plant to, to, to um, shade a west-facing window. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, you know, um, not all that big, but big enough to shade the window when it's... Mm-hmm. All right, well, there's, quite, there's innumerable small trees you could go for. I mean, you could go for something fairly obvious like a crepe myrtle. Yeah. They cope with the heat really well. Lovely bark, lovely flowers, good autumn foliage. Uh, and as long as you're not cutting them back like a coat hanger that some people do, they can be quite an elegant little tree. Uh, so you could certainly go for a crepe myrtle. And there's oodles of different varieties out there to choose from. I mean, Flemings and a lot of the other big growers have got a whole range of new varieties, different colours, different heights, all that sort of stuff. So you could look there. Uh, if you you wanted something a little more obscure, a small tree that I love is the Chinese quince, Cydonia sinensis. Um, it has pink blossom in late spring. It has huge, big, egg-shaped, yellowy-green fruit, which you can use. It gets bark like a crepe myrtle, so you get lovely bark on it, and it gets fantastic autumn foliage, and it's uh, it's quite heat-tolerant, uh, and it would make a lovely, light, airy, but good shade tree for a, a westerly window or something like that, and it's got excuse me, it's got something happening pretty well all year round. So you'll buy it either as Cydonia sinensis or Pseudocydonia sinensis. It's still lurking around under both names, although it would seem that the accepted name at the moment is Cydonia. So it's the Chinese quince, um, and I think it's a tree that's doing something interesting all the time. And it's reasonably quick-growing, so but doesn't grow too big. Oh, well, that, that, sounds, that sounds ideal. Thank mm. you very much. That's a pleasure. Okay, Great. bye. Thank you, bye-bye. Uh, now, we've had a query about uh, some of the orchids that might be on sale next weekend, Richard. Those orchids, <coughs> pardon me, the Master Villa and that that they've listed up there, they're all exotics, unfortunately, ah. which which aren't, aren't something that we handle. We, ours are purely the Australian native, and, and believe it or not, there's over 1,700 species of orchids in oh, Australia. Good. So there's plenty to keep you collecting. And that's right. And would you believe there's about uh, 400 just in Victoria, yeah. which, which has surprised some people. One comment I would make, one of the orchids listed up on that list was the Dissa. Um, I think it's the Dissa bracteata from South Africa yeah. has become an absolute weed orchid in our native bushland here. Goodness and me. we spend a hell of a lot of time removing them. Um, so... I would suggest anybody growing anything in the Dissa line, especially the Bracteacta, do not let it escape into the bushland mm. under any circumstances mm. because ours and a lot of money is being spent trying to eradicate it. Mm. It's it interesting. You it don't is think a of weed or going feral, do you? Well, it, it, I think it is classified as certainly an environmental weed now. Yeah. So, okay. so you do need to be careful with that particular orchid. It, it very pretty, it, nonetheless. <laughs> it, it, it is, and, and and the trap is it doesn't need a specific fungi. Mm. It will. Tolerate uh, any fungi, so off it goes. Right. And uh, it's even down through the Anglesey Heath. Mm-hmm. And I mean, oh, we're talking thousands of plants, not just the odd one well, or two. most orchids produce <clears throat> squillions of seeds per pod, don't exactly. they? Exactly. So they've got a chance of 
procreating that's and, and huge. It, it can go it can go for for thousands of kilometers because it's just like dust mm. so once it gets up into the air you know um mm. jet stream even and and it's been known to be transcontinental mm. in that that effect it can carry Goodness you know me. and uh so it does spread absolutely Gosh. Mm. Okay. So that does raise the issue. What happens if it had got up into the uh, uh, into the jet stream uh, two hundred years ago and blown to Australia and managed to find its own way? Then here? it would be a native. <laughs> then it would be a native. <laughs> well, <organ. laughs> exactly. And the in- the interesting thing is when you look at that with with the Australian, you talk about how did things progress and all the rest mm. of it. In Victoria, for argument's sake, or Southern Australia, the actual prevailing wind was the opposite oh. during the evolution of orchids. It was from east to west, right. not west to east, uh-huh. as it is now. So there's all sorts of things. When you're doing research on possible ways things evolved, mm. you need to do a lot of homework and look at what mm. was actually happening weather-wise as well. Uh-huh. But 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 that that's believed that that some of the the uh, orchids here that are established in New Zealand now have gone over from right. here. From, from here, here. Yeah. 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 So they're basically the same orchid, but mm. they're. Mm. They're not on the Australian mainland anymore. They've found their way to New Zealand. That's right. Oh, they still, but both. They're yeah. both, both here. So, so because that's the that's the prevailing wind back then. But, oh, now, even now, yeah. yeah. Goodness yeah. me. There you go. Well, we're all learning something all the time. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We've got about another uh, 20 minutes or so to run. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we've got Stephen Ryan, Penny Woodward and Richard Austin from the Australasian Native Orchid Society in the studio. So do give us a call on 94190155. Stephen, it's time we got to some of your plants. Yeah, I bought in a whole pile of stuff and we haven't really talked about them other than I've got one that's vaguely edible. Um, All right, where do I start? I think probably with the lesser celandines, which for a long time were known as ranunculus faccaria. Unfortunately, like many plants, they've had a name change. And so they're now called faccaria verna. So... um, it's been pulled out of ranunculus, uh, and the double-flowered forms of it are particularly appealing, I think. One, they don't self-seed. One, they don't cross-pollinate with each other. So if you've got specific forms of faccaria growing in your garden and you say, got an apricot orange one and a white one, they'll cross backwards and forwards. But the double ones are completely sterile, so they can't do that. So they're perfectly safe. Um, I'm particularly fond of the double yellow, which is just called faccaria verna floriplina, uh, and it's got that brilliant glossy yellow that, the old-fashioned buttercup has, mm. you know, that you mm. used to mm. stick up under your chin, which I don't the, like butter anymore because you can't see the reflection under my chin with the beard. But uh, <laughs> as a child, I used to like butter, apparently. Uh, and it has these quite pretty little sort of kidney-shaped leaves, bright, glossy green, and this amazing sort of almost enameled-like little double flowers that look like little water lilies. There's also a whitish version of it, and this does get a bigger flower when it gets going, but this was the only pot I had of it at the moment to bring down. Um, and for years I just grew this as double white because I couldn't find a name for it. But it actually has got a cultivar name, and it's sort of appropriate but not a good selling name. It's called Double Mud. What? <laughs> well, because it has this sort of greyishness underneath the petals, uh, which I guess you could say looks muddy. Oh, I think they could come up with a better name. Too than late. That. It's its registered name. You're joking. You can't change it now. That's oh, its name. But Double it might mud. also serve to stick in your mind. Because well, it yes, because it's mud. Right. Yes, <laughs> it would stick in your mind. Um, but double mud is a cute little sort of. It is sort of whitish, but the back of the petals are greyish. So when the flower's not fully open, the inner petals are sort of closed up. So they've got this greyish look. And even the yellow one does the same thing. I mean, if you look at the unopened flowers, it's got sort of a greeny grey 
background to the petals. Okay. So you've got this different sort of flower effect. And I think they're great little plants. They're ephemeral. They come up with the uh, late winter um, when the days start to lengthen and when there's plenty of water in the ground. Uh, they do their flowering in the spring. And as soon as the first warm days come along, they'll just go yellow and collapse and disappear. And they have a sort of a tuber, not unorchid-like actually, mm. that sits underneath the ground, um, that they die down to each year. And so it's one of those things I like to use with early bulbs and things because it gives a carpet under your daffodils mm. and other things that sort of gives you that double layering of effect. Uh, and they both like to be treated much the same way where they can be dried out a bit in the summer. Uh, and so you get a double whammy. Uh, okay. And there's uh, Ficarias that have blackish leaves. There's Ficarias with, with silvery streaking through the leaves. There is an apricot flowered one. Uh, the wild form is just a little single yellow flower. Uh, there's a single white as well. So there's a whole range of different forms in them. But as I said, the single forms will cross pollinate amongst each other and you can end up with rather a muddied sort of swarm of them. And of course, because the single ones are fertile, in certainly in heavy soils that have got plenty of moisture in them during the winter months, they can actually go weedy. So okay. just be a bit careful with them. The double ones are much more restrained, and because they can't self-seed, they're not going to move any great distance. So they'd be the ones I definitely recommend if you're looking for planting some of these. And they're great for underbulbs and stuff. Mm. And they're good under deciduous shrubs too. I mean, if you've got, say, roses in the garden that are looking like bits of leftover barbed wire at the moment, mm. uh, the ranunculus will t- or vicaria will take your eye, and then when the roses come and do their thing, this just disappears below ground level and you wouldn't know it was there. Right. So I think they're rather fun. So yep. for carriers, as they're now known. Okay. So uh, I think they're really good fun. And I guess, importantly, uh, probably the next thing I'd want to talk about that are in flower at the moment are the North American trilliums. And they've got to be my all-time favourite woodland perennials. Um, they're slow-growing, they're expensive, they take eight years from seed to start flowering as a rule. Um, if you buy one like a one I bought along today, which is a single stem uh, with a flower on the top, next year you might still only have a single stem or you might have a second stem that isn't flowering size yet. Uh, if you actually got two flowering size stems next year, you'd be doing really well. So it is a long-term plant, the trillium. You plant it with the, with the distant future in mind uh, or you throw lots and lots of money at them uh, to build up a drift quickly. Uh, it's the only way you're going to end up with quantity is to buy them in quantity. Right. Um, this particular one is a form of trillium chloropetalum and it has wonderful marbled leaves and it has three leaves that sit at the top of the stem, has three sepals, three petals, uh, six stamens and three um, chambers in the ovary. So everything's in threes, basically, and so hence trillium. So uh, everything in three. Uh, They're a great group of plants, well worthwhile some time and effort. They're woodland, so they like winter light but summer shade. Um, And their dormant buds sit just below the ground, so be really careful where you plant them because if you stick your heel down onto them when they're dormant, you'll hear this resounding crunch under your foot Mm. and you know you've just buggered up next year's trilliums. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they've they've got everything going for them and everything again them in a way. I mean, part of the charm of them is all of the issues with regards to them. Uh, But you will pay a lot of money for a good flowering size plant but I think they're worth any amount of money thrown at them because they are just beautiful beautiful things the trilliums so there's several states in North America that different trilliums are the state flower of uh, most of the species are North American but there's one or two that extend into Asia uh, but it is basically a, an American centric genus and uh, they are just exquisite 
Mm. This one's got the most beautiful dark burgundy flowers, but you can get yellow ones, you can get white ones, you can get pink ones. It's a whole range of colours in them. I've got a beautiful one that came up from seed that I'm calling sunburnt frog. Uh, I won't have it for sale <laughs> for a long time, but it's got green flowers with a slightly bronzy tinge to it. Uh, so I think the name's perfectly appropriate. Um, but because they're so slow growing, if I'm going to grow it from divisions, it's going to take me years to have any spare plants of sunburnt frog to offer. Um, but I've got them self-seeding in the garden now. So I was looking just yesterday at my Trillium Drift, which is looking beautiful. So if anybody wants to come and visit it, now would be a good time. And there's lots of baby seedlings coming up around it. But it'll be six to eight years before their flowering size. Yes. So It's just beautiful. And they are, they're, yeah. they're one of those flowers that you... Even non-gardeners will look at this and go, my God, what is that? Well, that was the first one I picked out this yeah, morning, well, wasn't yes, it, Steve? Yes, you know, exactly. I looked at that and thought, that, that's gorgeous. It is. They are just truly remarkable. I mean, there are some sort of slightly ulceran trilliums, but as a genus, they are just beautiful. And any trillium is worth having. Uh, I particularly like these dark burgundy ones because it's such an unusual colour. And in fact, there's not much in that colour at this time of the year anyway. So it's sort of, uh, it is an unusual colour. The white ones probably stand out in the garden better than the burgundies mm. because they do like mm. the semi-shade. And if you can find some with the particularly good marbling in the leaves uh, all the better because the foliage stays around well after the flowers are finished and the flowers themselves will last for probably four to six weeks which when you compare it to a daffodil or a tulip is damn good value Mm. and the foliage can be quite pretty for weeks and weeks and weeks after Mm. so they can make an impact in the garden far longer than your average bulb does do they last well in pots they are not bad in pots. You do have to repot and refurbish the potting mix comparatively frequently because they will impoverish your potting mm. mix like a lot of bulbs do. Because they'd be fabulous in an area, you know, like near a doorway oh, or on a mm. deck or something like that where you actually saw it all the time because yeah. my only worry about it is that it might get lost in my chaotic garden. Yes, well, and, so and, that you and small things can. See yes. It. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and, yes, they certainly could be pot-grown, but you would have to repot them fairly regularly. But I guess if you treated them like you would your average hosta, mm. um, and, of course, the good thing about growing them in a pot is that when they die down, you can hide the pot yeah. away somewhere yeah, in a corner. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Just make sure it doesn't completely desiccate because they don't have a proper bulb under them. They have sort of a an iris-like slow-moving rhizome, actually, mm. underneath them, and it doesn't like to dry completely out. Um, but, yes, you could. They'd make a lovely pot plant, and if you had a, a sort of a pot with sort of half a dozen stems or something mm. in it, you'd it get ages out of it. It's yeah. just lovely. So Trillium, uh, well worth looking at. Um, and uh, they, they're growable in Melbourne. They don't need a complete um, cold dormancy like they do get in the wild so they don't need a winter chill particularly and I've had quite a number of clients growing them quite well in Melbourne Uh, but you do need that winter light and summer shade for them to perform really well. So trillium, in this case, chloropetalum, which is a bit of a misnomer because chloropetalum means green, fl- green petaled, uh, and, it, and it ain't. <laughs> um, but anyhow, there must have been the first one found or something was a mm. greenish-looking one. It got that name, and now it's stuck with the rest of the colour forms of that particular species. So there you go. So are other ones, um, are they all similar sort of height? or? Uh, no, there's, there's actually variation in that. Some can grow a little taller than Trillium chloropetalum. Okay. There's a number that are slightly shorter. Some of them the flower actually curls over instead of standing straight up in the middle of the, the leaves like this particular one does. In fact, there's two groups. There's the, the stemmed trilliums, which have a little stem, and then the flower arches over a bit. Right. And there's the sessile trilliums, where the flower is plonked down into the middle of the leaves. Uh, so there's the two groups. Um, and so there's quite a lot of diversity in them. Okay. Uh, some have particularly beautifully marbled leaves. Others have fairly 
plain green foliage. Uh, I've got one in the garden at home that's not quite in flower yet. The flowers are rather a muddy greeny brown, but it has the most beautiful marbled leaves. They're sort of white and brown mottling all over them uh, called Trillium ludovicianum. And I've got a nice colony of it now, but I think I'm still several years away from being able to sell any spare bits on and being the greedy person I am I'd rather <laughs> keep it for me as long as possible <laughs> uh, but um, yeah so there is quite a bit of diversity in them there, okay. are, there is actually a little tiny one that has pink flowers that have got purple spots all over them oh. which up until recently was called Trillium Rivali and it's just a, a weird little thing that only grows to probably about 15 centimetres tall uh, and it moves around quite well in the garden so you can end up with colonies of it quite quickly unfortunately it's just been taken out of trillium and it's now in its own little genus called pseudotrillium Oh. which I only found out quite recently as well. Uh, it makes no logical sense to me, but there must be some hmm. DNA thing or yes. chromosome mm. thing yes. that makes it different from the rest of the trilliums. So I do. Well, at least they've left the trillium. Bit yeah, it's there. still got trillium in its name. <laughs> so you can so, trace it. <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I've still got a sense of it. But, yes, so I've had to change all my labels to pseudo-trillium on the little pink one. Uh, but they are really, really pretty plants. And uh, uh, one of my life's ambitions is to be in a North American woodland somewhere in spring when the trilliums are in bloom. I don't care which species I go to see, but I would love to see a woodland full of trilliums mm. somewhere. It would be amazing. I've seen them dying it? down. Yeah. When I was in Oregon years ago, we were there in the late spring, early summer, and I saw these sort of collapsing stems of trilliums mm. everywhere and thought, oh, what this must look like when they're in flower. Yes. So it's one of the world's great flowering plants. I just love them. Yeah, fantastic. So trillium chloropetalum. Okay, okay. <clears throat> Um, another plant, Steve. All right. Well, one that I thought would be interesting to talk about this morning is a, a, a Corydalis. Now, there's a blue Corydalis that's mm. been getting around the trade for a while now, uh, Corydalis flexuosa in its many forms, and it has a sort of a creeping rhizome under the ground and these intense blue sort of little tubular flowers that kick up on the end. They're sort of vaguely snapdragonish, I mm. suppose, mm. in a way. Um, and Flexuosa hit the trade after being discovered in the wild, I think in the mid-80s, uh, mid hit the trade in the mid-90s and it was everywhere before you knew it and they've actually got selections of it now, different forms and what have you. So it's one of those plants that went from wild to incredibly popular in, in less than a decade. So really impressive. However, there are lots of beautiful Corydaluses out there that never have and never will become chain store plants. And... These ones are seedlings that I raised of uh, Corydala solida, and I got the seed from Archibalds in England just before they closed down, okay. which were major seed suppliers of all sorts of rarities around the world, and it was supposed to be white forms of Corydala solida. Uh, and as one can see here, I have got white, and I've got a couple of whites that came up, but one of the seedlings has come up in the more classical pink form. Uh, and so, yeah, so there's there's sort of variation in my seedlings, which is quite normal from seed. I mean, especially if you've got an albino form, it's likely to throw back to mm. the, the wild <coughs> colour. So it now means I've got the interesting um, issue of trying to separate my different colours out um, and the best time to do that is probably when they're in flower, but it's not the best time to really disturb my pot of Corydalis. So what I'm going to have to do with this, and Corydalis solida has a, uh, a lovely tuber underneath it. Right. And the tubers multiply very slowly. So this is never going to be a commonly available one. That's why I say it's not going to be like Flectuosa in the, in the nurseries. I mean, you break a tiny little bit of Flectuosa off, pot it up. Yeah. 
and off it goes. Uh, this one, you've got to multiply the tubers quite slowly. And if you want to raise it from seed, you've got to have more than one clone. And that was one of the reasons why I got seed in, hoping that I would get several different clones that I can then use to produce seed, mm. which will be a much quicker way of doing it. Mm. So what I'll have to do with my pink and white ones is get my white ones out, take them well away from my pink ones, give them a year or so to settle down again where they don't have any compatriots around them, and hopefully they will breed reasonably true to form later. So I'll be able to sell white ones, and I'll also have the soft pink ones of it as well. So I'll keep them in separate parts of the nursery, and hopefully I'll be able to get plenty of seed because the multiplying of the tuber is really slow. Okay. And so if I were going to do it just by tuber division, it might take me 10 or 15 years to get enough to start selling a few spares. Um, and then I'll never be able to charge enough for the time and effort that went into them. Yes. So no matter what I charge people for them, it's not going to be a profitable exercise. But if I can get seedlings going uh, that I can feel confident will be true to colour, um, then I can get sort of quantity going and it will probably be a little cheaper. Mm. But, I mean, these plants, they're flowering for their second time and I put the seed in about four years ago. Mm. So it takes a little while to get underway with some of these things. But they're very sweet. You know, it's only sort of 15 centimetres or so tall and with these lovely little spurred flowers on them. Uh, Pretty sort of fine, ferny foliage. Um, I love the Corydalis. And a bit like the Ficari, as I was talking about earlier, they're early spring ephemerals. They come up, do their thing, and then suddenly they just disappear back to the tubers. And you need to keep the tubers dryish but not dead dry in the summer. So you don't want to have them really sort of desiccating in the summer. But uh, not too hard to grow and charming little spring flower. Can you tie a little bit of twine around one colour and just mark it pink or well, what white? I'm, what I'm and and that then, way... Don't you then have a problem with cross-pollination? Yeah, well, you do. Because you'd so have I, to put oh, a little net, a net yeah. bag over it or something. Yeah, but yeah. I'm just saying until, until they actually stop flowering, then you can, you can, it's the a more appropriate time I, to lift them. Yeah, the problem I seem to have uh, is that... I think that's a white one over there, and I don't know what that one is because it's not flowering size yet. Uh, I think I'm going to have to just separate them all out into individual pots. Yes. And then when they flower, yes. then mark each pot yes. so that I know which colour I've got because they're going to be hard to sort of differentiate they while they're to still separate. up. Yeah. yeah, so I think what I'll do is this year when it dies down, I'll take all the tubers out and I'll pot every tuber into a small four-inch pot or something like that, flower them next year, and then I'll see which ones are pink and which ones are white, mm. and then I'll have them separated out after that. But it's always a nightmare trying to separate colours when you've got small mm. bulbs and there's different colours in the one pot. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> there's no way of telling which one's which when they're dormant. The tubers will all look the same. Um But uh, I'm pleased to have some white solida. I mean, it's one of those plants I don't know too many people who've got the white version, so it's a good start anyway. (coughs) So uh, I think they're charming little woodlanders. Uh, They're mainly sort of from uh, Europe and the Middle East. Uh, They'll grow up in the mountains in Turkey and um, through Iran and Iraq and all through those areas of the world. Uh, So the Corydalis are a really pretty thing, and they're related quite closely to the bleeding hearts, the dicentras which people might be a little bit more familiar with. Yes, right. Okay. So there you go. Right. What do we have next? All right. Well, we've only got a couple left. Uh, Actually, Well, we've only got a couple of minutes to go. Yeah, well, which is probably a good thing. Uh, I've got a plant here of Hyacinthus orientalis, which is the wild hyacinth. So it's the wild form that the modern hybrid hyacinth was bred from. Uh, It has... A lovely hyacinth perfume. Um, It has little blue flowers. You can also get a pink and a white version of it. But it doesn't have the big fat flower heads that the modern hyacinth has. And as much as I enjoy the modern hyacinth, I always find it a difficult plant to 
place comfortably in the garden. It makes a good pot plant. It's a little mm. excessive, isn't it? It is. Yeah. You've sort of got these fat, chubby flower heads, and, and they sort of look artificial, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very hard to place them where they sort of look natural. As they degenerate and go back in towards the wild form, they actually look more natural in the garden. Okay. So, you know, as they get older and you, and you tend to find that they're not as well-fed and chubby, um, uh, even the hybrid hyacinth can go back to looking a bit more like the wild one. Uh, but I think the wild one's rather charming. It can get – I've only bought one along that's got two little flowers on the top of it stem you can get up to eight or ten flowers to a stem uh on a well-grown plant of it it multiplies gently by the bulb uh i'm assuming it can lightly self-seed as well although i haven't had any real self-seeding happening in my garden with it Uh, but it looks lovely with the early miniature narcissus and all those sorts of things it sort of blends in nicely whereas the the hybrid hyacinth will just take over visually um uh, they're but just it's too a lovely blue. It is. It's mm. a beautiful mm. shade of blue, mm. um, and lovely shape to the flower. It's just a really elegant mm. little bulb, and really hard to get. I don't know anybody much uh, other than myself that's kept going with the wild form, mm. and uh, uh, I think it's it's a lovely, lovely plant. So hyacinthus uh, <laughs> orientalis. That's hard to say, especially with your teeth out. Um, <laughs> And um, as I said, you can get a white and a pink form, although I've not come across them. I, I know they're in the country, but I haven't managed to source any for myself at this stage. But yep. if anybody's got the wild form in pink or white, I'd be interested to swap some blue <laughs> so that I could round out the collection. Um, and as far as I know, I think it's the only thing left in Hyacinthus. And there's only the one species okay. in the genus, I think. Okay. Because, um, of course, all those bluebells and related plants have all been sort of swapped around and pulled back together and thrown out again, and uh, they've gone all over the place. Mm. I mean, the English bluebells had about five different names in the last 150 years. So, yes. Um, so they do tend to sort of get swapped around a bit. Okay, we've got time for one last plant. Steve. All right. Well, I'll mention lastly is the plant I bought along that I said was edible, the Pachyphragma from, um, uh, from Turkey. Uh, it comes from the woodlands up in the mountains of Turkey. Uh, it's a great ground cover for a, a shady spot in the garden. It's not a ground cover in the sense that it runs, but it self-seeds and it makes clumps. So you get this sort of clumps of drifts of clumps through a garden bed um, it's very easy to pull out if it comes up where you don't want it it leaves enough gap around it that bulbs can come up through it and it's not going to swamp other small plants around it and at this time of the year it's a sheet of white in my garden I've got an area in my garden at Macedon that would be nearly the size of the studio which I know doesn't help people at home much but uh, <laughs> it's a moderate sized room um, you could fit a bed in here um, and it's all under some maples and a hazelnut tree I've got in the garden at home and it's just this sheet of white Uh, And it is a really lovely sort of clean, sharp white. Uh, Its leaves are somewhat reduced at this time of the year, but when the flowers finish, the leaves come up and they're quite large, heavily veined, and it looks exactly like wasabi, if anybody's got a wasabi plant at home. It's it's closely related. It doesn't have the bite wasabi has. Mm. Um, And the flowers are edible, and as I said earlier in the program, not much flavour to them. And... Uh, plants for a future suggest that the leaves might well be edible as well with cooking, but I haven't tried to do that. Um, uh, I'm not quite at that level of poverty yet to, to particularly worry, although I might have a go at it one day just for the fun of it and just see whether it works or not. Um, so I think uh, Pachyphragma is a really pretty plant. There's only the one species, Pachyphragma macrophylla, um, and for a woodlandy area, you can imagine this growing with a drift of... Oh, gosh, yes. Mer- Burgundy trilliums Perfect. would be stunning 
and Would that's be. that's my next plan. All uh, right, uh, see what I can do. We're going to have a whole meadow full, are we, Steve? And can I just quickly <laughs> mention Tonkin's Bulb Farm? Oh, please yes. remember if people are looking around the Dandenongs uh, in the. Middle of the National Park uh, on Melway's reference, 120C12. Jane and Shirley Tonkin's nursery is open on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or by appointment from 10 till 3 p.m. And they have a lot of these rare plants. I reckon you could buy a trillium from the Tonkin. So if okay. you're up in that area and right. not in my direction, yep. go up and see them and see if they've got any trilliums left. Uh, and if you want to talk to somebody, 0417-525-371. Fantastic. Richard, very quickly, all the details of the show again. Yes, uh, so that's next Saturday and Sunday, and uh, from 9am to 4pm, we're at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, which is in Miller Crescent, right opposite Mount Waverley Railway Station, so we'd love to see you come down there. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll have a nice weather weekend too. Perfect. Okay, we've run out of time for yet another week. A big thank you to all the team and to Jan, who's been answering all the phones. We will, of course, be back again next week. Uh, You have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Coming up next is Alternative News. Until next week, bye for now. 